DW, World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad has returned to the Arab League after years of being ostracized. Regional leaders say it's the right choice. I very much expect that many European and Western states will not be pleased with this Arab decision. But this is an independent Arab decision. But critics are outraged. How can they possibly welcome someone into their circle who has trafficked in drugs, killed children and used chemical weapons? Someone who has destroyed Syria and its people and stolen from the state. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. On this week's show, we're taking a closer look at Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Assad has been persona non grata on the world stage for years as a result of his role in Syria's brutal civil war. Since the war began in March 2011, more than 14 million Syrians have been forced to flee their homes, roughly half leaving Syria altogether, according to figures from the UN Refugee Agency. Over 300,000 civilians have died, and the Assad regime has been accused of not only locking up and torturing its opponents, but also of using chemical weapons and barrel bombs against civilians. But despite all of this, the regional organization of Arab states, known as the Arab League, welcomed Assad back to its ranks in May at a summit in Saudi Arabia, which has critics of the regime wondering what's behind the decision. Reporter Ana Osias has this feature. It's presented by Elliot Douglas. A warm welcome for Syrian President Bashar al-Assad as he returned to the leaders of the Arab League in May for the first time since 2011. Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman received him with a brotherly kiss and embrace. The host country and the other heads of state and government did not let on. They were welcoming someone who had been a persona non grata for years. Assad himself smiled as he walked the purple carpet in the Saudi port city of Jeddah, aware that the world's cameras were trained on him. The Syrian dictator and commander-in-chief of his country's armed forces has been largely isolated for years because of the brutality he unleashed on his own people in the civil war. Not a word of this was mentioned in his speech to the Arab League. Instead, he told delegates that they were faced with an opportunity to change the international situation, that they were entering a new world of multiple powers as a result of the dominance of the West, which had no moral principles, friends or partners. President Assad is the most powerful man in Syria today. That's Lebanese military strategist and political analyst Amin Khotait in Beirut. Assad has managed to regain control of 70% of the country. Everyone, friend and foe, has submitted to him. The dictator's return to the world stage has been on the cards for some time. With the help of his strong allies, Russia and Iran, Assad managed to recapture a large swathe of territory and has held on to power by force. 
but at what cost? Civilian hospitals, schools and markets targeted, mounting evidence of war crimes. Around half a million people were killed in the Syrian war, according to one UN study. Around 300,000 of those were civilians. Some 14 million have fled their homes and become displaced persons. That's more than half of the Syrian population. Observers accuse Assad of using chemical attacks and barrel bombs against his own people. They say around 100,000 opponents of the regime have been thrown into prison, tortured or killed. All of that has been punished. Today the Syrian economy is in ruins. The country is completely impoverished and some 90% of Syrians live below the poverty line. A demonstration in northwestern Syria, the part of the country that is still in the hands of insurgents. The return of Assad to the Arab League is a slap in the face for the Syrian opposition and many refugees. Mohammed, one of the demonstrators, is appalled. We are gathered here today because the Arab League is acting shamefully by normalizing relations. How can they possibly welcome someone into their circle who has trafficked in drugs, killed children and used chemical weapons? Someone who has destroyed Syria and its people and stolen from the state. I wonder what has prompted these Arab leaders to meet with such a criminal. Rami, a Syrian refugee living in Lebanon, echoes the sentiment. Someone who has killed, has driven you away, has tortured and who is to blame for our plight as refugees. Should we be applauding a person like that? Oh no. For us, Syria remains a dream. A dream that is now ended forever. Such statements certainly wouldn't give the Syrian dictator pause for thought. The country is ruled by a presidential and dynastic dictatorship. All power has been concentrated on the Assad family for decades. They belong to the Alawite religious community. The minority group is one of the regime's most important pillars. When the young Bashar al-Assad came to power in 2000, many had hopes for change and an opening up of Syria. Before the civil war began in 2011, the dictator and his wife Asma were welcome guests in France, among other places. Assad was even awarded the Grand Cross of the French Legion of Honor. Many leaders across the globe maintained good relations with the friendly young dictator from Syria. Then came the civil war, and Assad showed his other, critics say true, face. He has clung to power at all costs for years. But why has the Syrian dictator suddenly burst back onto the political scene after years of being ostracized? Many geopolitical interests are at play. The Arab states want to take control of their fates without interference from the West, says the Arab League's General Secretary, Ahmed Abdu Gait. I very much expect that many European and Western states will not be pleased with this Arab decision. But this is an independent Arab decision. Western leaders aren't exactly pleased about Assad's comeback, but for Arab states this is part of the new realpolitik and a pragmatic strategy being pursued on the back of the many crises the world is now facing. Some Arab leaders are frustrated with the US, which has been pulling back from the Middle East in the past few years. To some degree, the Assad decision is about asserting their independence. 
So Syria's readmission is important, says Al-Azab Al-Takhir from the Egyptian magazine Al-Akhram. The move shows that Arab states are acting on their own, without the influence of powers like the United States. Close relations between Turkey and Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates could help ease many regional crises. This could be the start of a new phase of rapprochement in the region, including with Syria, says Steve Haderman, a Middle East analyst from the U.S. Normalization was seen by Arab League member states as a way to gain influence over the Assad regime, to provide incentives rather than sticks in the form of sanctions, to try to induce the Assad regime to change its behavior in two principal ways. First, to create conditions on the ground inside of Syria that would permit refugees to return. And second, by taking steps to end Syria's involvement with uh, the trade in illegal narcotics, in Captagon in particular. And the hope is that normalization would create the environment in which the Assad regime would be willing to make those two changes in the way it conducts itself. Resuming relations with Syria could allow the Arab states to start discussing pressing issues with Assad directly. Issues like the refugee crisis, the humanitarian situation, Iranian influence and the illegal drug trade supported by the regime. Much of the world's production of the stimulant phenethylene, commonly known as Captagon, takes place in Syria, causing major problems in Saudi Arabia, Jordan and other countries. Arab states have reportedly attached several conditions to Syria's readmission to the League, like curbing drug trafficking and the return of refugees, as well as opening talks with the Syrian opposition. But will any of these conditions ever be implemented? Middle East analyst Stephen Haderman has major doubts. So far, however, we see no evidence that the Assad regime is responding positively to normalization. And I suspect that there are Arab capitals where this is already becoming a source of frustration. I'm deeply skeptical that normalization will produce positive results. And I think that skepticism is based on a reading of the conduct of the Assad regime over the course of many decades. In fact, going back before Bashar, the Syrian regime, the Assad regime, has a very well-established pattern in which it holds out the possibility of gains on the part of negotiating partners, is offered concessions in exchange for those possibilities pockets those gains, and then fails to deliver on the expected concessions or compromises that its partners have asked for. This is an established pattern for the Assad regime. The only, I think, incentive that Arab states can now offer the Assad regime that might lead to change is if they are willing to make significant investments. That's because economically devastated Syria has a major interest in foreign investment and aid. Even if a normalization of relations with Assad has been in the offing for some time, the final trigger was February's devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. The tragic event gave Assad a helping hand, says Mohammed Ezzal Arab of the Al-Ahram Research Institute in Cairo. The Assad regime is the big beneficiary in the earthquake disaster. Assad has instrumentalized this to resume relations with Arab countries and to overcome his pariah status. 
He also wanted to extract clear promises from the Arab states to participate in the reconstruction of Syria. The impoverished Syrian population would benefit from reconstruction efforts. Many aid organizations as well as the United Nations have been working in Syria for years. But some have criticized parts of the UN's operation in the country. In the insurgent-held regions of northern Syria, humanitarian aid flows directly across the border from Turkey. But in the parts of Syria controlled by Assad, UN staff need to make sure they get along with the authorities. There have been reports about Syrian officials using humanitarian aid to enrich themselves and distributing aid among Assad supporters. And in the aftermath of the earthquake, many criticized Assad for holding up the emergency response. Aid organizations were only able to help victims several days after the disaster, when many had already died in the rubble. So is the autocratic dictator Assad now about to transform into an internationally accepted leader? Iran and Saudi Arabia have agreed to re-establish diplomatic relations after seven years. Analysts partly trace Syria's readmission to the Arab League back to recently improved relations between longtime rivals Saudi Arabia and Iran. In March, the two regional powers announced they would resume diplomatic ties under China's mediation. Just a few weeks ago, Iran opened its embassy in the Saudi capital, Riyadh. In his speech, Iranian Deputy Minister for Consular Affairs, Ali Reza Bekdeli, expressed optimism that improved relations between the two could benefit the entire region. Diplomacy as the best means for communication and dialogue between countries to reach a common understanding, a stability, peace and development is not a choice, but a definite necessity. And the reopening of the embassy and consulate of the Islamic Republic of Iran and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is an important and fundamental step in this direction. Saudi Arabia's rulers have long supported the Syrian opposition. Their welcoming of Assad back into the fold is seen as a concession to Assad ally Iran. In return, compromises in the Yemen war and other regional conflicts could be on the cards. The news that the region's long-time arch-rivals Iran and Saudi Arabia were resuming diplomatic relations hit observers of the region like a bolt out of the blue. Egyptian political scientist Mustafa Kamel Saeed said this. I think this is also a sign of realism on the part of the two countries. When Prince Hamad bin Salman, you know, came to power, you know, with his father, he took some moves which were not just ambitious, but also risky. For Iranians, it's also a sign of realism on their part. Iran is isolated internationally, and there are internal problems in Iran, and um, under these circumstances, I think it is a bit for the Iranians to try to, you know, improve their regional relations. And also, it is important also to pull you know, Gulf countries, and the most important of uh, these is Saudi Arabia, to bring them away from, you know, any possible alliance with Israel and uh, from taking, you know, always the line adopted by the United States. So also it is a sign of realism on the part of the Iranians. It is a sign of realism on the part of Saudi leaders. Over the years, numerous conflicts in the Middle East have stemmed from rivalries between the two hegemonic powers, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And hardly anyone, neither in the region nor in the United States, had expected the foes to reach any form of agreement. 
So in Washington today, there's a lot of consternation, surprise, and concern about what the path is forward for U.S. power in the Middle East and even more broadly around the world. That's former U.S. diplomat Hillary Mann Leverett in a recent interview with Qatari broadcaster Al Jazeera. In the past, it was often the U.S. which acted as a mediator in the region, so it came as a shock to many this time that it was China taking that role. Here in Washington, and I think throughout the United States, Americans view the United States as the indispensable power, the indispensable power on the world stage and the indispensable power in the Middle East. What happened yesterday with the agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia brokered by China is that China really took almost took that spot. China is now really the indispensable power in the Middle East. That's just a fact. China has the money, it has the diplomacy, it has the wherewithal to become the indispensable player. The Chinese government has a number of interests in bringing the Saudis and Iranians together. Firstly, they want to trade with both partners without snubbing the other. But above all, the country's leaders want to send a signal to the international community. China and its close ally Russia have knocked the West from its perch on top of the new world pecking order. And the Saudis, who are historically close allies of the United States, turn to China for a reason, says political scientist Ibrahim Freyhat. He is a professor in international conflict resolution of the Doha Institute in Qatar. Saudi Arabia has, we have seen a pattern of a frustration working with the Biden administration over the past two years, which led Saudi Arabia to diversify its security partners and work with other players. So the Saudis looking at the East also to diversify. I think this also links to China. We are expecting to see tension reduction in particularly in Lebanon in Syria, to a certain extent, and also in Yemen and in Iraq, because these four places, these four countries in particular, you know, where we had a serious proxy conflict or proxy war between the two countries, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, happening for the past few years. Lebanon, Iraq, Yemen and Syria. These are four countries whose fates are closely linked to the geopolitical power games of the two big regional players, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Now everything has played out exactly as observers predicted when the Saudi-Iran détente was announced. The Saudis have invited Assad to join the Arab League. In return, Saudi Arabia is likely to want to withdraw from the civil war in Yemen in an act of face-saving. For years, the domestic civil war in Yemen has been fought as a proxy war of Saudi Arabia and Iran, with devastating humanitarian consequences. And following the new deal between the two foes, there is hope for crisis-ridden Lebanon too, says Lebanese entrepreneur Wada Shahabi. In Lebanon, some forces support Saudi Arabia and other forces support Iran. If these two countries do not get along, we see it reflected here. It's like a child whose parents are divorced and both the mother and father basically ignore his needs. If the parents get along again, it's also better for the child. That's how it is in Lebanon. This country does not make its own decisions. There are many geopolitical reasons for wanting improved relations with Syria. 
Lebanon wants to solve its refugee problem. Some 1.5 million refugees from Syria have arrived there since 2011. It's been a major challenge for the economically depressed country, which itself has only about 7 million inhabitants. Jordan, Iraq and Turkey are also home to many Syrian refugees. And to the dismay of the Syrian opposition, their one-time close supporter, Turkish President Erdogan, is now talking about improving ties with Assad. Egypt has been historically close to Syria anyway. The two countries were linked as a pan-Arab republic in the late 1950s, and the government in Cairo was quick to show solidarity with Assad after the February earthquake. That's probably also because Egypt has an interest in maintaining a good relationship with Assad's ally Russia. But many countries are simply following Saudi Arabia's lead when it comes to accepting Assad, because they want to maintain good relations with the wealthy Saudis. For the rich Gulf states, economic interests are behind the shift. They hope to contain the influence of Iran in the long term by reviving ties with the Assad regime. I'm in a place where anything is possible. Welcome to the most exciting city in the Middle East, Dubai. This is how the United Arab Emirates advertises itself internationally. A small Gulf state with two glittering cities, Dubai and Abu Dhabi. A land of innovation, investing massively in technologies like renewable energy. A country of superlatives. It's home to the world's tallest skyscraper and as a home to major events like the World Expo 2020 and the upcoming COP28 climate conference, to name just a few. But behind the dazzling facade are hard-nosed political interests. The UAE is viewed as an unscrupulous puller of strings in the Middle East and Africa. What is striking is the demonstrative closeness of the ruling houses in Abu Dhabi to the Assad dictatorship. The Emirates was one of the first countries to re-establish diplomatic ties with the Syrian regime back in 2018. Middle East analyst Haydaman explains. I think the UAE was an early mover in the direction of this more pragmatic regional strategy. And I think the UAE has long viewed the more punitive diplomacy towards Syria that has been practiced by the West, meaning you know, very coercive sanctions that impose a very high degree of economic isolation on Syria from the rest of the world. I think the UAE has seen those that approach as ineffective. I think it has felt that that sanctions have failed to bring about changes in the conduct of the Assad regime and that it wanted to explore the possibility of using a more incentive-based diplomacy to see if it could achieve changes in Syrian conduct. The Emirates is also friendly with Assad's ally Russia. Just recently, President Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed visited the International Economic Forum in St. Petersburg and played up his close ties to Russian leader Vladimir Putin. There are many threats confronting us, especially given Russia's current situation, Mohammed bin Zayed said. But we have made up our minds and are taking steps, regardless of conditions imposed by the West. The UAE, like Saudi Arabia, is officially neutral in the Ukraine war. But the Emirates' burgeoning relationship with Russia is clear. The two countries established visa-free travel in 2019, and numerous Russian oligarchs are using Dubai and Abu Dhabi to park their cash and avoid sanctions. Minister of State for Foreign Trade Tani bin Ahmed al-Zayoudi explained Russia's importance as a trading partner at an Atlantic Council event recently. We had more than 4,000 billionaires move to the UAE, and we were ranked uh, one of the top five destinations as a favorable destination for many of those uh, high wealthy people to the UAE, including the, the Russian. 
But we saw many of the movements from the Indians, movements from Europeans, movements from uh, the uh, Australians, as well as the, uh, the Russians to, to the UAE. When it comes to Russia itself, the growth last year on our bilateral was 95% in comparison to the year before, which means that we almost doubled our bilateral trade, non-oil trade with, the, with Russia. The situation has led some to question whether the US has lost its former ally to Russia and China. Emirates head of state Mohammed bin Zayed was invited to Washington several times in recent months, but the visit has never happened. And observers see some clear trends. The UAE has been Russia and China's largest trading partner in the Middle East for some time now. Business with Russia is flourishing across the board, with the Emirates reportedly shipping 15 times more microchips to the country in 2022 compared to the previous year. It also exported 150 drones. The share of electronics parts shipped from the Gulf to Russia increased sevenfold. Abu Dhabi also reportedly supports the Wagner Group's activities in Libya, as well as Sudan, where the mercenary group allegedly operates a gold processing plant. The UAE has become an important hub in exchanging gold for cash. The Emirates have a clear economic interest in good relations with Russia. As a close ally of Assad, has Moscow also perhaps exerted influence to ensure that the Syrian dictator has become palatable again in the Middle East? Life on Earth, a unique ecosystem of people, plants and animals. A fragile planet. Join us at COP28. And now Assad also has an invitation to the COP28 UN Climate Conference in Dubai at the end of the year. The move raised eyebrows among international observers. Is the world set to once again welcome Assad as just another normal guest alongside other heads of state and government? Will Assad discuss Syria's climate change policy as a speaker to the plenary of the planet's most important men and women? The invitation has sparked fears that some countries may boycott the meeting. For Assad, COP will be his second time treading the boards of the international stage since before the war. His first appearance was the recent Arab League summit. However, his readmission to the Arab League was by no means unanimous in the run-up to the summit. Qatar and Kuwait opposed Syria's return, but then reportedly abstained from voting. Ahmed Abdul Gate, the Arab League Secretary-General, said this. Today Syria is a full member. However, this does not mean the League's member states must adopt a certain attitude towards the Syrian government. There are those who will restore relations and there are those who will hold back. That's a sovereign decision for each country. Saudi Arabia, like several other states, has already begun to establish diplomatic relations with Syria. Assad is in the best of company among the Arab League's circle of despots, say some critics, cynically. For Assad, the return is a triumph. He wants to be recognized internationally again as Syria's sole legitimate ruler. One thing he can be sure of is backing from his allies, Russia and Iran. In the West, however, things look rather different. The Netherlands and Canada are taking Syria before the International Court of Justice on charges of human rights violations. In a joint complaint, they accuse Assad's regime of torture, inhuman treatment of prisoners, sexual violence and abduction, among other things. And at a recent special donor conference for Syria in Brussels, European Union Foreign Affairs Envoy Josep Borrell stressed one thing. Dear colleagues, let me be clear. The conditions are not in place for the European Union to change its policy on Syria.
the EU's Syria policy is not going to change, for now. Washington and Berlin have also categorically ruled out normalizing relations with the Assad regime at present. But perhaps, observers say, this too is only a matter of time. And so far, time seems to be playing into the Syrian dictator's hands. Elliot Douglas with that feature by Anna Osius. And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To listen back to this and other reports from World in Progress, check out DW.com or download the show from Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions, just drop us a line at worldinprogress at dw.com. This week's show was produced by Vipka Teichmaya and me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Ziad Abu Sleiman. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany.